the Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment. Welcome everyone to the Spiritual Brew Pub podcast. I'm your host, Michael Camp. The Spiritual Brew Pub is a safe haven for former evangelicals or former fundamentalist Christians, for evangelicals who are questioning aspects of their faith, for skeptics of organized religion, and for anyone who is curious and hungry to learn religious history in order to inform them in their faith or their non-faith. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. David Smith, a professor of comparative religion and philosophy. David grew up in the world of fundamentalist religion. As an adult, he gradually moved away from that paradigm and became a religious progressive skeptic. After earning an MA in philosophy of religion, he received a second MA and a PhD in religious studies from Temple University. Formerly a full-time faculty member at Central Washington University here in Washington State, he now teaches at the University of Washington and offers independent seminars and non-credit courses in comparative religion and philosophy. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today with David. He's going to uh, tell us about his journey out of fundamentalist Christianity, some of his insights into comparative religion, and kind of give us some insights on how to talk to each other about religion in a respectful way uh, and how to have civil discourse in general, and especially in our polarizing uh, age of polarizing religious and political conversations. So David, I wanna offer you a warm welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Michael, I'm happy to be here. Great, hey, and before we get started uh, with some questions for David, uh, I always like to tee things up. And um, I, I heard David speak at my Rotary Club uh, via Zoom these days, and he was speaking to us on how to have civil discourse over controversial issues. And David, you impressed me so much, I just had to have you on my podcast. And so we're here today, uh, and we're still in the midst of a pandemic. Um, you know, we're getting used to the new normal. Uh, polarizing events are happening in our cities just this week uh, with the George Floyd case, or where people have been protesting his death at the hands of overbearing police, where we've had largely peaceful protests, and rightly so, protesting police brutality, a lack of lasting police reform, and things like that. Um, some of the police culture that's going on in the inner city in some departments. And then this week, the protests recently and wrongly turned violent. And we have the dilemma of how to be civil and protesting injustice, which can take a long time sometimes. So uh, as we get into uh, our 
topic today in religion, uh, the larger issue is still there over the roots of our disagreements and how to navigate them. So with that backdrop, uh, let's start with your story, David. Um, uh, what put you on the road to move from your fundamentalist Christian roots? Well, in the 1980s, um, I began to see things in the Bible that didn't make sense to me. And as you know, evangelical Christianity puts virtually all of its theological and spiritual eggs in the Bible basket. And so we, <laughs> yeah. you know, we, we grew up being taught that the, the Bible is inerrant. It is without error in the original writings because of divine inspiration. And so I started to see things that didn't make sense. I started to see things that appeared to be contradictory to me. And being naturally rational and analytical, when, when I, you know, as I began to see things that didn't seem compatible with each other in the text, I couldn't just walk away from that. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't let it go because my mind wouldn't allow it. So at first it's things in the text just catching my attention and eventually uh, th there were en enough things there that troubled me that I started looking at the text very carefully and I started pursuing uh, the evidence for and against biblical inerrancy. And as that uh, process unfolded, I discovered more and more things and I just changed my mind, or as I like to say, the evidence changed my mind. And I mm. came to believe that the Bible really did have some genuine contradictions, some genuine inconsistencies. And then um, on top of all that, some passages that really began to offend me. <laughs> so right. it was really all about the nature of the biblical text itself. That's very interesting. I had a similar journey in questioning a lot of things in the Bible um, and then doing, uh, I, I'm, I'm, we're the same personality. I, I, uh, I like to research things and get to the root of them. So it sounds like we were doing some of the same things there. And it's true. You come up with, you, you start to uncover things and uh, not that all of the Bible is bad, but you find all some of the ugly things and some of the contradictions that you, that you have to, deal with and you and yes. you can't just uh, brush them under the rug. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, what kind of um, background did you have in, in uh, Christianity? Uh, what was your, you know, your growing up and, and uh, your formative years like it, uh, in fundamentalism? Well, I grew up in the world of independent Baptist fundamentalism. So uh, my father was an ordained minister in a, a Baptist church near Philadelphia. And I spent time as a kid on the mission field. We were missionaries. My parents were missionaries to Mexico. So I got some cross-cultural experience growing up. And so I lived in that world for a very, very long time. I see. So how many years were you in Mexico? About five. My right. elementary school days. I okay, there. cool. And then we came back to the United States after that. All right. So you were a missionary kid, as we say, right? Yes. An M MK. <laughs> and uh, there's also pastor's kids that are called PKs. So. <laughs> oh, they're worse. They're much worse. <laughs> they're much worse. <laughs> well, I have to confess, I was actually a missionary in Africa for seven years. So um, I wasn't an MK or a PK, but I, d I definitely was a kid of uh, very... Um, uh, uh, serious uh, and 
committed uh, evangelical Christians. Um, so that's very interesting. Um, so the other question about your journey is, uh, how did you end up being a professor of comparative religion and philosophy? What brought you down that road? Well, my journey from right to left in religion was a very slow one, very gradual, very analytical, very rational, and I must say very painful in a number of ways. So I took this very seriously, unlike, you know, some people who grow up in that world and never really bought into it. I was very much committed to it. As a kid and young, young adult, I really wanted to do the right thing. I wanted to believe the right thing. And so as I started to change my mind, um, you know, this, this became really my highest priority to figure out what to do with all of this evidence against the worldview, the only worldview that I had ever known and had pledged allegiance to. Now, I'm one of those people who you know, took a long time to figure out what he wanted to do with his life professionally. When I graduated college, it wasn't clear. Even when I got my first master's degree, it wasn't perfectly clear to me what I should do. But this, this deep need that I, that I had to find answers for myself sort of converged with um, you know, this, this thought that maybe I could actually find some answers for myself and then get the degrees necessary to teach others and empower them to think for themselves and find answers for themselves. So after I got my first master's degree in philosophy of religion, I took time out from the academic world and worked for five years in law enforcement. I was a city oh, police officer. Really? Really? I like to call that my philosophy <laughs> practicum. You know? Okay. Where, where were you uh, uh, serving as a police officer? Uh, Lynchburg, Virginia. Oh, wow. Of all places. That <laughs> sounds like the, uh, <laughs> the uh, what, what would you call it? The uh, mecca of conservative <laughs> Christianity in some That's ways. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, I served in law enforcement. I wanted to time out. I wanted some real life experience. Uh, but during those five years, it became clear to me that I really did want to teach for a living long term. And my, my experience in law enforcement was intentionally uh, temporary. I told them I would serve no more than five years if they would hire me, and they chose to hire me anyway. So then I, it, it became clear to me that I, I really wanted to get, pursue a PhD, first of all, again, to find answers for myself, and then to, at the same time, empower uh, me to empower others to think for themselves. And so that's how I got into it. And that's why I love what I do. I thought for myself, and it wasn't easy because the pressure, as you know, from other conservative believers um, to conform is tremendous. And so there was a social price to pay. And um, I was professor at a an evangelical liberal arts college, and I had to walk away from that job. So it was it was quite the journey and it was not easy, but I had to think for myself. I had to be authentic. And so my passion now is to empower people to think for themselves and to make it easy. You know, it should be easy you know, to think for yourself and draw your own conclusions. We humans shouldn't uh, make this uh, personal journey any harder than it has to be. So that's how I got into it. That's very exciting, David. Um you kind of like in some ways you're kind of reiterating what my one of my passions is uh on this podcast and my um 
work, uh, working with people uh, who, are, who are evolving spiritually, is to make it easier. And it is very painful. Uh, I understand exactly what you're saying, because if you come out of a family or a church that's really strong and you go a different direction, uh, there is, there's kind of a, um, a culture there that uh, labels you as a, as, a, as a heretic or apostate or, or whatever. And uh, they, they're kind of taught that, oh, they're obligated to try to get you to, to come back or to warn you, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's very interesting. Uh, what what uh, evangelical college did you go to? I'm curious. Well, I went to um, Calvary University in Kansas City for my undergraduate, and then I got my first master's degree at Liberty University. In oh, Lynchburg. at Liberty. So you did go to Liberty. Okay. I went there for a master's degree. And, then and that's for people who don't know, that's where... That Jerry Falwell founded that one. Is that yes. correct? Yes. Right. Okay. All right. Um, yep. And then I, you know, when I decided to get a second master's and a PhD, I went to Temple University in Philadelphia, which is a state university. And I, that was very intentional. I was trying to figure out what kind of institution uh, would help me, you know, the most to come to terms with my own questions. And so I decided to get out of the world of evangelical Christianity and get a PhD in religious studies from a state university. I see. Okay, cool. So um, I noticed that you call yourself um, a progressive skeptic. Tell us about that. How did you decide where to land when you went through this? Yeah, progressive slash skeptic, because I mean, on some things, I'm just progressive or liberal in the way that I understand them. And in other ways, I, uh, either I'm undecided or have just, um, you know, changed my mind to the point where I don't believe it anymore. So it depends on the issue. I did not go all the way to atheism. Right, right. So um, I, I just landed where reason and spirituality took me. So I have always considered myself both of those things, rational and spiritual, and I still do. Um, I believe deeply in reason. In, if you think about some of the most important areas of life or aspects of life, when things are really matter, when things are on the line, we do turn to reason. Even people who seem to minimize the value of reason in their more theoretical moments. You know, you go to the doctor because you're sick or injured. You know, you want medical science based on rationality, based on evidence, based good science is rational. Right. So when you deal with that, you want reason um, in a court case. Um, if someone is charged with a serious crime and you're on the jury, your duty is to follow the evidence where it leads you, right? I mean, when it, so when things matter in life, evidence matters and reason matters in the pursuit of truth. So I've always believed in rationality. I think it is essential to our humanity, but also this thing called spirituality, which is defined differently by different people. It's one of those words uh, spirituality. I give a lecture called Spirituality with and without religion. And it's one of the hardest things to define of all the things on which I lecture, because people understand it differently. But I think there's something to this notion of internal enlightenment that gives you a perspective on the world and um, helps you understand questions of meaning and value. So, uh, yeah. Again, I just kind of landed where reason and spirituality took me. And that's right. very progressive forms of Protestantism. 
Right, yes. So, yeah, we have a very similar journey. Um, David, uh, I, I can relate to almost everything you sa you're saying. Uh, I, I definitely um, uh, go towards uh, making my first book was my quest for a reason to faith. I was, <laughs> I was out there <clears throat> trying to f figure things out. And, and it's like you said, people, uh, that's a natural thing for people to do. It's like, uh, uh, we just kind of, you know, when we're in, in the conversation with someone about um, anything that's, that makes, um, is, is very important to us, you know, we'll say things like, well, that doesn't make sense, or, you know, that, right. what sense does that make, you know, and <laughs> what we're doing is we're, we're, we're looking at the world and trying to make sense of it, yes. and so we're doing that all the time, naturally, that's how we kind of live our life, and then, like, you gave two really good examples in health and court cases and criminal justice, uh, you, you got to look at the facts, and we, yes. we, you know, we agree that there are facts out there, we may not be able to, uh, be completely 100% sure about them, but we can uh, know that the probabilities are that then, and we can know when things make sense and when things don't make sense. So that's that's fascinating. Um, and so it sounds like we kind of landed in, in similar places. Um, so you're not an atheist, but are you consider yourself uh, still a Christian or, or, or what, what, or do you just avoid labels? It's, it's a question I struggle with all the time, and, and it really does come down to semantics. And um, one of the challenges that, that I find just academically, as well as personally in the 21st century, is figuring out what it takes to embrace any particular religious label. What are the criteria? What do you have to believe? What do you, what do you have to do? So what does it mean to be a Christian? You know, what are the, is there some minimal, you know, amount of belief or practice um, one must embrace and demonstrate to be Christian. Um, I still turn to uh, Christian worship I, when I go to church. It's the Episcopal Church, and so there's something about the liturgy, there's something about uh, the music, and there's something about the sacrament for me that is still very meaningful, very powerful, and very uh, encouraging. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, yes, but if to be Christian means I have to interpret much of the content of Christian faith literally, then I, I don't qualify. I, you know, the farther I've moved to the left, the more symbolism I see in biblical stories, in doctrines and so on. That's so it really depends. What are the criteria? So I guess right. according to some people, I still am. And according to some people, I'm not. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm like that too. I fall in there somewhere. Oh, one of the things I like to bring up in my study of history is that actually, technically speaking, Jesus and Paul and the first uh, followers were not Christians. <laughs> right. They were actually Jews and uh, they were just introducing a reformed Judaism uh, that was universal. It was welcoming to uh, to everyone, right? And so, of course, uh, historically, that later became an institution, which Christ uh, never did uh, found an institution, never founded a church, and uh, and so there, it's very interesting that when you look at the history behind it, and we see we have all uh, organized religion has a certain way of looking at it, but there's another way to look at it as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, before we get into some of the other questions about um, what you're doing, 
today. Uh, just one other follow-up question I have is, what was the pressure like that you got when you changed? What, what was that like for you? Yeah, the social aspect of a change of mind is very, very powerful and difficult to uh, navigate sometimes. So there were some people in my life I knew absolutely could not handle my change of mind. And I did my best not to share it with them because I knew, you know, one of the things we talk about in civil discourse um, is picking your conversation partners carefully because not everybody is a candidate for civil discourse when it comes to ideology. So with some people, I just didn't go there at all. And I, and I actually worked hard uh, to protect them and myself from that conversation. There were other people I shared it with and while they just could not comprehend it. They just couldn't process and understand how this could be. They remained respectful and, and loving toward me. There were mm -hmm. other relationships that were ruined by the change of mind. Mm -hmm. um, right. Because they, they couldn't handle it. And one, one of my best friends called on me to repent. And, and so yeah. that, that sort yep. of ruined the friendship there. I don't, I don't know how you repent of a belief. <laughs> Repentance does literally from the Greek, you know, mean change your mind, but you can't just change your mind about something that you uh, have become convinced is true or false. Right, right, yeah. So it was tough. And I, I, I think I can say the hardest part of the journey socially also involved finances because I was on the eve of tenure at an evangelical liberal arts college. All the professional requirements were in, but I had gotten to a point in my journey where I knew that I just didn't fit in there anymore and I had to walk away and start over. That's tough, and yeah. That, it was tough to start my career over again. It was tough financially, but it was also very disappointing to see how um, other evangelical scholars treated me on the way out. Um, mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. all kinds of lessons learned along the way. On right. The social aspect. Right. Well, yeah, I can relate to that too. I mean, it's, it's a difficult choice, especially when, you know, it's one thing when you kind of in your formative years, you make your break with it and you move on. But when you're actually making your living <laughs> in that area and then you have to change, it's, it is a career change and it's very difficult. Uh, yeah. I had to get out. I got out of a mission work like that. Um, so um, let's let me let me ask you another question that uh, I would like to know uh, how um, you could help me uh, on this podcast. We help people transition out of fundamentalism, and you you were talking about how you really want to make it uh, uh, help people think for themselves. I thought I like that. This is you're giving them information so they can think for themselves and make it easier for them if they make this choice of transitioning and, and questioning things. So what advice would you give uh, me to help people come to terms with their experience, um, whether they're just getting started or in the, in the middle or they're ending their process? Well, I appreciate the question. And it's, it's, um, it's a wonderful thing to help others along, along the way. Uh, first of all, I guess I would say, uh, be patient with yourself. Um, you're not crazy even if people want you to think you are. You're not crazy. And many other people have taken the journeys to take comfort in that. Be patient with yourself. If you're trying to come to terms with 
who you are and what you believe or should believe, it, it may not happen overnight. It may not happen quickly. So be patient with yourself. Um, a psychology professor uh, that I met years ago who knew something about my journey uh, said, David, if the people in your life won't affirm you, then find new people. Now, you can't find new family, but you can make new friends. You can find people who've taken a similar journey or people who just believe differently uh, than the way you were raised and who can affirm you. We all need some affirmation from others. You can also get some affirmation by reading you know, the stories of uh, others or other scholars who disagree with the way you were raised. So other people can can be affirming and encouraging. You just have to find them. Um, I developed a way of reasoning about religious matters that I have found useful. I have found comforting, and I'd like I'd like to pass that on. And it's it's um, what what we call if then logic. If then logic. If there's a God. If there's an afterlife, if this, that, or the other is true, then what? Okay, so um, I encourage people, and this is what I call a philosophical method or way of thinking through religious truth claims, especially when you're not sure what to believe. If there's a God, um, what do you think God is like? What do you think that word means? And so for me, I, I came to believe that if there's a God, God is perfect goodness. That's a way of understanding God that I've come back to repeatedly, perfect goodness. Um, if God exists and if God is perfect goodness, then what? So what a perfectly good, and, and think about whatever other characteristics of God you think seem likely if there is a God, and then use your view of God to test the truth claims about God that people make, whether it's a story in the Bible. The way God is represented in a story in a Bible is that representation compatible logically with your view of God. Now, maybe you're trying to figure out what your view of God is, and so that can make this more challenging, but I came to believe that if there was a God, God was perfectly good, and so um, would a perfectly good God be mad at me for having honest questions? Would a perfectly good God be angry and want to punish me because things didn't make sense to me and I was actually allowing reason to change my mind? After all, if God exists and if God created me, apparently God created reason. And, and, and presumably, if there's a God who created human beings with reason, God expects us to use reason. So why would God be mad at me if I'm using this set of intellectual tools known as reason that, that God gave me to begin with. So logic, sometimes people think logic is detached and cold and not connected to real life or real experience. And I, and I see this very differently. For me, reason liberated me mm -hmm. from, from the right. bondage, from the bondage of fundamentalist dogma. Mm -hmm. Reason was empowering. And so um, be patient with yourself meet new people who can affirm you and encourage you if you need that and figure out your own view of God. If you have one, you know, if you, or if you believe in God rather, and then start to test all these things you were taught over against your own view of God. And I think that you will be empowered to continue your journey. 
Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Um, we, I think one of the things that people get hung up on is that, uh, in my experience, <clears throat> that they're taught they have to accept everything they read in the Bible, for example, or everything that, you know, evangelical Christianity declares as the non-negotiables, right? Yeah. You know, someone says, these are the non-negotiables, right? And the Bible is, you have to accept that but God really did do this in the book of Joshua, <laughs> right. wipe out, you know, whole cities, et cetera, including the non-combatants. Yep. And, um, and because they're taught like that, they have a very difficult time of moving away from that. But it's, if I, if I think that way, the way David's saying it, then I'm not being biblical. I'm not, but you're, what you're saying is that, but you're being true to yourself and you're thinking for yourself. And you're actually, you're actually connecting the dots about, hey, if I, if I still believe in God and God is perfectly good, how could he do this? And how could that have happened? And how can this be true? And uh, what really would be, what would be true in the claims and what wouldn't be true? And uh, that sounds very liberating to do it that way. Um, uh, what, what, what would you have to say to someone who's just really been taught and it's drilled into that? I'm sure it was drilled into you that the Bible, you can't, you can't go against the Bible. You can't yeah. pick and choose what you like in the Bible. I love to talk about that. And I guess I would say two, two things uh, to help you with that. Uh, the first thing would be, well, how do you pick and choose? Because I, I, of course, believe there is some truth and wisdom in the Bible to this day. I also think there is error and danger in some passages of the Bible. So how do you determine what's what? Well, how do you determine truth in any other area of life? Well, you pursue evidence, right? Um, but whatever your answer is to that question, how do you determine truth outside the Bible? I would say, apply that to the Bible. So for me, it's evidence and spiritual enlightenment. That's how I determine the truth about things. And so when I read through the Bible, I'm looking, I'm, I'm, I'm using reason. And that sense of spiritual enlightenment, that is very hard to define, but that, that internal light that you know, helps you discern truth and meaning in the world. So that's one thing to consider. Why, why um, would you not apply the same methods and tools to the Bible that you apply to everything else in life when people say something is true? But secondly, and this is what I wrote my PhD dissertation on, that was, again, it was for me, and then it empowered me to help others. Uh, but I wrote my PhD dissertation on the New Testament canon. The question of why are these particular books in the Bible? And I focused on the New Testament, but what I'm about to say applies to the whole Bible, right? So the canon, the question of the biblical canon is the question of which books are actually in the Bible, who made these decisions, what were the criteria, what was the process? And one of the fundamental things that you realize when you study the process of um, canonizing, and I'll focus on the New Testament and how those, for the first 300 years, the church fathers are uh, kind of figuring out which writings to put in their New Testament to kind of simplify this here. And what one of the things you realize is that this is a very human process. 
what's interesting is in the Bible, there are claims of divine revelation, right? God speaks to Moses on the mountain, or Paul says he had so many revelations, God had to humble him with a thorn in the flesh. But nobody ever claimed a revelation about which book should be in the Bible. Nobody even claimed it. So this is, in early Christianity, a very human process, uh, which I love to talk about, and I'm just trying to hit the bullseye on the target here, but human beings decided to include the 27 books of the New Testament for a variety of reasons, fundamentally because they believed these writings were written by apostles or associates of apostles, and so they could trust the content. But the decision was very human, and as early as the early fourth century, there were about a half a dozen books of the New Testament that were questioned by some churches. They didn't want them in, the, in their New Testament. Right. So realizing that the process of recognizing the books of the Bible as scripture was very human, nobody claimed a divine revelation. That's something that in religious communities you almost never talk about. You just deal with the finished product, the Bible. That's correct. Absolutely so, correct. So looking within the text to see the humanness of it and then recognizing the humanness of the, 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 the process. Yeah. These are, in the Bible, we have a record of human perceptions of the divine. We don't get mm -hmm. God unfiltered. And so mm -hmm. if the church had the right to decide for itself which books to include, you and I have the right to think for ourselves in the context of biblical truth claims. As yeah, well. that's, it's fair. It's just fascinating to me, David, we've, we, we've come to so many of the same conclusions. And um, uh, you must I, be a uh, man of wisdom, then I, I just I'm like, I'm flabbergasted. He's just, I said that in my book, you know, I said, I've been saying this for years. Well, one of the a couple things you, you, you touched on uh, one thing that definitely I try to tell people is, um, you know, use the same method that you would use in any uh, situation to determine what's true or not. Yeah. So, you know, you can read, um, I don't know, anything. You can read something that's very inspirational, the writings of Martin Luther King, but we don't say they're infallible. We don't say he's infallible, but we can find inspiration in, in that, yeah. right? And, or we could look at something more controversial that's a little more polarized. We use reason and we decide if it's true or not. And, and it's, it's just like you said, you need to use that same method when you look at the Bible and it's, and it's not, and you shouldn't uh, be afraid to do that. And the reason why you, you shouldn't be afraid to do that is just what you were pointing out in your second point, is that when you look at the process of how the Bible was compiled, uh, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you find out that um, actually there was a lot of debate going on about what was scripture and what wasn't scripture. And that's a whole nother topic, but you touched on it. I mean, the New Testament canon, so true. They debated about Revelation, Jude, some of the other books. They didn't, most people didn't, uh, half, the, half the quote church didn't want some books in the Bible like those. Uh, and they didn't consider them uh, uh, part of scripture. And other people did. And um, they ended, ended up in the... Uh, fourth century coming out with some compromises and deciding, okay, uh, you know, here's a list of scriptures for the New Testament. But that was like in the fourth century. Yes. And, and in the first century, people didn't think that way. They were like, there were debates going on, even within yes. Judaism. The, the prophets... Can I, I link this with uh, the earlier comment I made about if-then logic? 
Yes, go ahead. So mm -hmm. people are worried. What if I don't get it right? What if yes. I what if I determine what if I conclude that as you the the episode you mentioned earlier, which is one of those things I consider offensive, you know, the conquest of Canaan, commit genocide to take the promised land. And suppose, as I have, I've concluded God never gave that command. Well, suppose it turns out he did. Well, if then, well, if God exists, and if God is perfectly good, and if I'm doing my best to determine truth, and if I conclude that that command is not compatible with perfect goodness, and I'm wrong, and I, I missed something along the way, would God really be angry with me? I mean, what about that process would anger God? Right, exactly. And I think that that, right. that notion that if I, if I conclude it didn't happen, then it did, or I don't believe this, and it turns out to be true, or I believe something that turns out to be false, and that it makes God mad, and it's going to affect your eternal destiny. I mean, we're really getting under the surface here now. If there's a God, and if there's an afterlife, and if I do my best to determine truth, why, even if I don't get it all right, why would God be angry? I determined years ago, it makes no sense to think that I have to pass a theology test to get into heaven. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's so true. Um, wh why, yeah. right, why would you have to worry about it? Um, uh, yeah, you can, if you can get people to think along those lines, uh, I think that's, that's very freeing. It, it's like, if, 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 and most people really do believe uh, God is loving, um, you know, but as the way I've discovered is they actually believe in a two-faced God because he's loving one day, but then you turn to the book of Joshua and he's obviously not loving. Right. Or you turn to something else. And so they, they have that fear, but at the heart of it, they really are attracted to the love ethic. And I think that's where you can reach people is if you can, like, we can agree, we can usually agree on the love ethic. Uh, and then if, and then if you, that's really what God is like, then, it, it, then how can he be like these other things? Yeah. Um, so uh, I like to say that uh, when people say, oh, you can't pick and choose things in the Bible. And I go, well, we can pick and choose. And you know why? Because that's how people compiled the Bible. Some people picked and chose exactly what should be in the Bible and they have the right to do it. So why don't we have the right to do Absolutely. it? <laughs> Absolutely. Like, so uh, this is very interesting. Okay. Um, let's turn to a little bit of a different angle here. Uh, what is the difference between psychological certainty and philosophical certainty? I talk about this um, a good bit in my lectures on how rationality works. And I do make this distinction. I think humans have, we experience two types of certainty, psychological and philosophical. Psychological certainty just means we feel certain. I can feel certain about something, but not have the evidence to back up that certainty. And we feel certain for any number of reasons. Maybe we were taught something growing up and we've just never had you know, good reason to question it. So it seems right. It fits into our worldview. It works for us. And we feel certain. Uh, we may feel certain about things for emotional reasons. We need that sense of comfort or security. So we can just feel certain for a lot of different reasons. But philosophical certainty is having the evidence to back it up. We talk, again, let's go back to the criminal court uh, situation or analogy. In criminal court, you need proof beyond a reasonable doubt to, to convict someone of a crime. It's not 100% certainty. You can't have that, but you can have 
very high probability if you have a lot of evidence. Right. Yep. So that's what I mean. If I'm confident in a belief, is it based on overwhelming evidence? Is it based on emotion? Is it based on uh, just something that I have been handed by others and I've never had a good reason to question? But recognizing that difference is really, really important if we value truth. Because the mere fact that I feel certain about something is no guarantee it's true. Right. Yes. So there's the feeling versus the empirical evidence. Um, yeah, that's, uh, I think that um, one of the things that drives the feeling can also be uh, fear. Because if you fear to, to disbelieve, then that kind of plays into your, that's not evidence-based, that's just this fear that comes, comes in and then influences what you decide is, is certain or, or not. Yes, and the other aspect of this, though, that is harder to evaluate and discuss is when people talk about, and, I, and I've already affirmed in this interview my, my belief in spiritual enlightenment, but some people would say, well, I am confident or I know something because I'm spiritually enlightened or to use Christian language. Oh, right. Okay. Because the yeah. Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has shown it to me. Right. 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 And who and can so, argue with the Holy Spirit, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. But uh, so I, in my philosophy of religion course, we, we analyze this a bit. I, I respect that because I, I feel that kind of enlightenment. But here's the problem. And this is something I concluded about spiritual enlightenment uh, a long time ago. And then I discovered it in the writings of Sam Harris, the neuroscientist, mm -hmm. philosopher, uh, atheist, who said the same thing in his book, Waking Up. Even if we experience, experience spiritual enlightenment, and we really feel like there's some internal experience we've had that shines a light on, on reality. Mm -hmm. Being spiritually enlightened does not mean that all of your beliefs are true. Yeah, right. Okay, and this is, this is subjective, and it's hard to kind of wrap our mental hands around. Mm -hmm. But the mere fact that I feel enlightened, and I feel like it helps me understand the meaning of life and so on, is no guarantee that everything else I believe is true. And so this is what Harris says. He says, people who feel enlightenment all around the world, the mistake they make then is to conclude that all of their beliefs are true. And we have to analyze our own sense of enlightenment, why we feel enlightened, um, exactly what beliefs we feel are being confirmed by that spiritual experience and understand that it's a subjective thing. And people around the world in different religions with contradictory truth claims between the religions all feel enlightened. Yeah, that's right. and, and I, I interviewed a man years ago who had left the particular religion in which he had grown up. And he said, I, I left because I realized that people in every religion claim the same kind of enlightenment. So I'm not, I have no advantage over others in my attempt to convert them. Right. So, yeah. That's de uh, an observation I made um, when I was in the evangelical movement. I, for a while, I was involved with the charismatic movement. And I've had some pretty amazing experiences uh, where I felt like um, I uh, experienced the love of God, let's say. Okay. Very good, positive experience that I still, I still believe in. Right. But what happened and what happens to a lot of us, a lot of us, uh, most of us in the, in these movements is when you have these enlightenment experiences, 
you, as you say, you, you uh, make the assumption, oh, that means that everything in this, if, you, if I had it in the context of this church, then it must mean everything the church teaches is true. <laughs> right, right, right. And people don't, people don't say it that way, do they? No, but they don't. I think, they, I think yeah. it's subconscious, but I think that's very yes. widespread phenomenon. Right, because they, especially if it's something very powerful, they go, wow, I've never had this happen before. This must all be true. Whereas, you know, right, if, if someone says, well, you know, uh, if, they've, if they've been around the block a few times, they say, well, I had the same experience over here, and they believe, you know, something totally opposite or whatever, <laughs> then, then they might be clued into that. But we, there's that sense that, oh, wow, that, that, that must be all be true. But then, but you're right, it's, you can discern the difference. And uh, uh, just because you have an, an enlightenment in one area doesn't mean everything is is uh, you can be certain about everything else. You still have right. to use your enlightenment uh, uh, faculties uh, on a whole host of uh, doctrines, et cetera, and, and reason and, and your own reason to figure things out. Yeah. So we've talked, uh, we've touched on this a little bit. Um, everyone, you know, people get uh, uh, various beliefs. You had pressure and uh, coming out of evangelicalism. I, I had the same experience. People go through a phase shift and uh, we, we have very difficult conversations with people uh, that we disagree with. And so you have a, actually have a talk on civil discourse. And so uh, I wanted to ask you, what, what are the main principles that you've derived of maintaining civil discourse? When we talk about polarizing beliefs, it's particularly religion and it could be politics too, it could apply to that as well. Yes, I give a lecture for an organization uh, called Humanities Washington, and the lecture is Civil Conversation in an Angry Age. Uh -huh. And I talk about having conversations with people in our lives who disagree with us ideologically, and I refer to what I call the big three, religion, ethics, and politics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I try to help audiences understand why it's so hard to be respectful in our disagreements and then what we can do about it. But I don't, I, I try not to present this in a way that makes it sound like, well, just follow a few principles and it'll be easy. It is not easy. And I admit to my audiences as well that I've had both successes and failures in my attempt to disagree well or to um, talk with people who disagree with me. But I do think there are some principles that are very useful. I think, first of all, a fundamental commitment to virtue or character development is where it starts. I mean, to, to have respectful disagreements with people about ideology, it, it takes some inner strength. So in virtue theory or character development is a, an approach to ethics, one of many different approaches to ethics that focuses on uh, being good and not just doing good. Mm, so the right. virtues are characteristics of noble people, things like humility. And, and, and the four that I recommend in the context of civil conversation would be humility, self-control, forbearance, and courage. So humility, I mean, back to that phenomenon of psychological certainty. I can feel absolutely certain that, I, that what I think, what I believe about something is true and you disagree with me, so you're wrong. But I could be wrong. I have changed my mind, you know, over the course of my adult life about things 30 years ago, I was absolutely sure were true. And so we have to cultivate humility that no matter how 
smart we are, or how much education we have or experience, we could be wrong. And the problem is we're all fallible. We're all certainly wrong about something right now. We just don't know what it is. <laughs> right. so, oh, well, yeah, go ahead. Well, so humility, I mean, humility is a, is a virtue we need. Self-control when the emotion is rising. For those of us who are really passionate, we have to work on self-control. Forbearance is turning the other cheek. If someone is not civil toward me, can I just be patient with them for a while to see if I can kind of redirect this conversation and put it on the right path? Uh, I think turning the other cheek is a virtue up to a point. We all have the right to draw boundaries. If people are being uncivil toward us, we don't have to take it forever. But I've just heard some amazing stories from people uh, since I've been giving this lecture about others who were uncivil to them and they chose just to be kind and respectful and ask the person to explain their view or their attitude um, and um, it, it ended well. Now there's no guarantee that turning the other cheek will, will work, but it is a virtue up to a point. And then courage for people who are Timid, if you, if you have a bully in your life or someone who's dominant and they are, they're opinionated and they expect everyone to agree with them and you choose, and it's your choice whether or not to engage them. But if you choose to engage a dominant person or a bully, it's gonna take courage, especially if you're more reserved. And you have to use good judgment about whether to engage any particular person on any particular issue. You have to make, a judgment about whether you think the conversation will be productive and then you do your best. So that's, I mean, one, one of the keys I think is virtue. Uh, following the principles of good communication would be another, which means if I'm having a genuine conversation with someone who disagrees, we both get to talk, we both get to listen. And for many of us, the talking part is easier we don't really listen when we listen. We hear words, but we're thinking about how to respond instead of really trying to process what the other person is saying. For again, for the shy person, the listening part may be easy and the speaking part may be hard. Right, so those right. are a couple, I, I, I talk about other principles, but those, know, that's good. Character yeah. and listening and- um, Yeah, humility, courage, forbearing and listening. Yeah, excellent. Um, it just kind of, yeah, yeah, I was laughing there for a moment because it just reminded me of this uh, saying that, you know, someone had, uh, I just saw it recently some, on someone's, um, in, on a block form in someone's house. It said, I would agree with you, but then we'd both be wrong. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, um, but, and then I also thought of something else. You're talking about, you know, how you're um, uh, being good, not just doing good. And, you know, when you, when you, uh, go down this path of really trying to show humility, understanding, yeah, I could be wrong. Um, I, I say that to people. I, uh, I say, you know, I, I could be wrong. And then I say, how about you? Could you be wrong? <laughs> and, and, and how they answer that question is very revealing because a lot of, you know, usually someone who's very certain about their Christianity, particularly, they'll say, oh, no, I can't be wrong. You know, <laughs> it's, it's a, very interesting. But, but um, hmm. Uh, but when you go down this path of uh, tr uh, trying to be uh, humble, um, patient with people, really listening and under trying to understand them, use a little bit of empathy, and then you come back and you use courage to challenge them in a respectful way, uh, it can really have 
incredible results. It's not easy. That's the thing. We usually give up before we get the fruit of it, but it takes time. Have you ever heard of a guy named Daryl Davis? I don't believe so. Yeah, well, you should Google him. Daryl Davis, he did a, a TED Talk, and he, um, he goes out. Uh, he's a black man who encountered racism, and um, he asked himself, he asked a question, the question, uh, why do racist people uh, hate me when they don't even know me? And so he, he was a musician, and he, by chance, happenstance, he met a Ku Klux Klansman once uh, while he was on tour in the South. And he, he actually began a friendship with them, him. And uh, going through a process of befriending this person and doing pretty much what you just laid out, having a civil discourse with this person, he started, I guess you would call it a, a, just a, a passion or a ministry of reaching out to Ku Klux Klansmen and befriending them. And, and believe it or not, you know, I think he's seen uh, up to 20 of Ku Klux, Ku Klux Klansmen leave the Klan as a result of their relationship with him. He's got their robes in his closet. <laughs> they give him his robes. And he goes, I'm collecting them because I want to start a museum one day. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That is amazing. It's an amazing story. Amazing. Google it. Go listen to his TED Talk. It's incredible. So um, anyways, that's just good to say that this this uh, path of civil discourse can work and, uh, it's, and, 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 it, and it helps us to grow, right? You really become a better person, right? Because, you know, if we're just going out there and just doing the same thing that people are doing on the other side, let's say, then, you know, what makes us different, you know? So um, I really liked, I, I love to take that course uh, that you're talking about. You have a course in that or is that just a talk that you do? That's just a single lecture. Okay. Um, Washington. Oh, okay. They hire speakers for a two-year period, and you give a single lecture all across the state of Washington. And so that's that's what I'm doing for them currently. All right. Cool. Well, we're kind of running out of time. I don't like to go much more than uh, uh, this amount of time. And um, just a couple more questions. Uh, one of the things that I noticed on your website, you said you sometimes ask people, what is more important to you, what you believe or what is the truth? And uh, I'm curious, what kind of responses do you get when you ask people that question? It's one of my favorite questions. What matters more to you, truth or your own beliefs? Because they're not identical, as I mentioned right. earlier. Surely we are all wrong about something right now because we've been wrong many times before. We just don't know what it is. Yeah. So, right. If I value my beliefs above all other things, then I guess I'm assuming I have landed at truth. I, right. I figured life. things out. Right. Exactly. So uh, I hope we all value truth more than our own beliefs because the whole point of believing something is to have truth. I think, I hope. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Now right. you've asked what are the typical responses? I really can't answer that because when I ask the question, I, I tell people that I really just want them to reflect on it. So I don't, I don't get feedback intentionally. Um, I did a radio interview once where callers would called in and, and actually answered the question and we got different responses, but I just ask people to reflect on it. 
because I, I'm not sure the average person has really thought about that very much. Which do you value more, truth or your own beliefs? If you value truth more, then you're willing to question, you're willing to listen to others who disagree because they actually could be right about something. Mm -hmm. And when you change your mind, as I did about some things, it can be painful for a while, but then a new joy emerges when, when you draw your own conclusions, you believe you have a truth in some area of life. Um, it's worth the process. It's worth the pain because there's, again, a new joy that emerges when you've drawn a conclusion after doing the work. And so let's all pursue truth. Yes. Excellent. Good. Good. Well, that's a great way to end, uh, David. Um, one final question is how can, uh, how can we tap into some of your, uh, we don't have to go to the University of Washington to tap into your, your material, right? You have offer non-credit courses and some independent seminars. How do we tap into that? Yes, I teach uh, in a variety of contexts. Of course, the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of Washington is a program of continuing education for adults 50 and older. If you want to join OSHA, the courses are held in different uh, parts of the Seattle metropolitan area. I do a lot of teaching at retirement centers and I'm now expanding um, because of the current situation. I'm starting to organize a series for people via Zoom and this would be for anyone who wants to take the course. So I've already scheduled my first one it's going to be in July and August. Uh, the course is called Character Development. So we're gonna be looking at the virtues, many different virtues. We'll look at some theory and then analyze the actual virtues that we just referred to a few minutes ago uh, here in this interview. So if you'd like to take character development, um, I'm in the process of putting all that together, but you can see everything that I do at my website. It's beliefsandethics.com beliefsandethics.com. All right. That's great. So folks, um, check out David's website, beliefsandethics.com. There's great material. There's some courses that you can take. And David, this has been a great uh, conversation. Um, frankly, it's <laughs> much better than I even imagined it was going to be. I knew it was going to be good, but it's, it was even much better. So I want to pre appreciate you taking the time out of your day today to join us and uh, we're going to uh, you want, encourage you to share this with others so we get the word out about yourself and we'll, we'll do the same. So um, uh, thanks again, David and uh, everyone. Uh, we're going to end our, this episode of Spiritual Brew Pub and uh, we will see you next time uh, and, and, uh, and the next episode as we inter continue interviewing uh, very fascinating people like David Smith. Thanks, David, for joining us. My pleasure. The Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. 
Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment.